The End of Sophia, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Sophia, the great infrared telescope mounted in a 747 aircraft, made its last flight on the night of September 30, 2022. Director of Science Mission Operations, Margaret Meixner, joins me for a conversation about the observatory's legacy not long before she got on board for that swan song journey. You'll hear her sorrow and joy. It's a solid joy to know that the CD of the Moon Symphony is about to become available, including liner notes by yours truly. We'll have a copy for the winner of the new Space Trivia Contest Bruce will present today. Though I'm still feeling the symptoms, I'm very glad to announce that I've tested negative for COVID twice today. It has not been a fun 11 days of isolation, but my experience has been so much easier than many around the world. Still, it's partly why this week's show is a bit shorter than most. Be careful out there, folks. A smashing success. That's how Nancy Shabo of the DART mission described it in last week's show. And it's the headline for the September 30 edition of The Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. Take a look at the spectacular image captured by Italy's little Licia cube shortly after the impact. Wow! There's a link to many other images and more about the mission at planetary.org downlink. Poor Artemis 1. NASA had to roll it back to the vehicle assembly building ahead of Hurricane Ian. Now it seems the next launch attempt won't be till mid-November. That's also bad news for all the secondary payloads on board the Space Launch System rocket. Also in the downlink is your chance to help give official names to 20 exoplanets. For real. This is through the International Astronomical Union, after all. Details on this opportunity are also in the downlink. There isn't much I need to say ahead of my conversation with Margaret Meixner. It's always sad to lose a great instrument of science. This is worse in at least one way than the collapse of the great Arecibo radio telescope, because this time it's intentional. But as we've heard many times from Planetary Society Chief Advocate Casey Dreyer, SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, has long been under the eyes of NASA and others because of its expense. As you'll hear, Margaret is disappointed but accepts the decision to end operations. She notes that this leaves us with a big blind spot in our ability to understand the universe. You'll hear her mention the powerful interchangeable instruments that have enabled SOFIA to do its great work. They are EXIS from the University of California, Davis, FPI Plus and FIFI LS from the German SOFIA Institute, FORECAST from Cornell University, GREAT from the University of Cologne in Germany, and HAWK Plus from NASA JPL. SOFIA itself is an 80-20 partnership between NASA and the German Space Agency, the DLR, You'll also hear Margaret mention IPAC, that's the Infrared Processing and Analysis Center at Caltech, where anyone can explore SOFIA's data. The science mission operations that Margaret heads are a partnership between the University's Space Research Association, or USRA, and the German SOFIA Institute. 
It has always been based at NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center in the Mojave Desert, not too far from Pasadena. And it was near there that I found Margaret preparing for the final flight. Margaret, welcome to Planetary Radio for uh, a conversation about SOFIA, uh, that flying observatory which has given me a couple of the best experiences I've had in my professional life. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Matt. We would have continued to report on Sophia's wonderful work if it had a long life ahead of it. But of course, as you know, the end of Sophia's days as a flying observatory is uh, almost upon us. In fact, by the time our audience hears that, it will have passed. Are you still looking at September 30th as uh, the last observational flight? Actually, the last observational flight will be tonight, September 28th. Uh, uh, and I'm so delighted I'll be on it. I don't blame you. Boy, that's got to be poignant, very special. I mean, there is so much to celebrate with this observatory, but there you have to have very mixed emotions, I assume. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I uh, took this position a little over two years ago, we were set to revamp and um, greatly improve the science productivity of Sophia, which we did. And we were super excited about its success. And we were, you know, deflated with uh, the outcome this year uh, due to the decadal uh, survey and then NASA and DLR's decision to conclude the SOFIA mission. It's, um, you know, it's a sad moment because um, SOFIA has worked very hard well, throughout its life. But particularly this last two years, we really ramped up. We are at peak performance in terms of flights, in terms of science publications, um, in terms of uh, science community engagement. Yeah. You know, I suppose if you have to end, you're ending on a high note, but still we, um, we, we do, you know, we could, funding permitted, of course, probably go on for another decade. But it's, um, you, know, it's uh, you know, a tough decision that NASA had to make in light of the decadal. And, uh, you know, we accept that. But uh, personally, I'm very, personally, I'm very sad about the moment. We can get through the, the sadder portion of the conversation and move on to the happy stuff a little, little bit later, because um, the observatory, Sophia, has been so productive and, and, and has made such huge contributions, which I hope you'll be able to talk about a little bit. I, I've uh, heard from some of your colleagues at uh, the German Aerospace Center, the DLR, particularly the uh, uh, Sophia, German Sophia Institute, they are, I guess it's safe to say, not just sad, but um, probably a little bit angry. They, they would love to see this continue. And in fact, they also have some hope that uh, we're not going to see the last uh, flight of Sophia uh, uh, tonight as, as you and I speak. Does it look like there are any prospects in that area? And, and, and do you have anything to say to the not just the uh, the folks in Germany, but the other international partners and, and astronomers around the world who've relied on Sophia. Uh, yes, no, I I agree with the sentiment of you know it being sad and, and disappointing. And to my knowledge, we don't have we will not be continuing under NASA and DLR. I, I suppose somebody else could pick it up, but I I have no news on who that would be or or how it would be operated. Um, who would be operating it? Certainly, it's um, it, it would be a fabulous acquisition if somebody decided to t to latch onto it. What happens now, uh, at least in the coming weeks and months, uh, to the plane, the telescope, 
those marvelous instruments that it has used to collect all this great data, and maybe most importantly, uh, the team. Right. Well, let me start off with the plane and the and the instruments. I mean, these are um, some of the instruments are owned by institutions, and of course, they get returned to those institutions, like uh, the Great Instrument, um, the Heterodyne Receiver Instrument that belongs to University of Cologne. Likewise, uh, FIFLS belongs to the German University in Stuttgart. But uh, some of the instruments are what we call facility instruments. That's at NASA's discretion about where they land. Um, and I haven't heard yet of what those are. Uh, you hear things about, well, maybe some will go to a museum. Maybe some will be reused um, for other um, parts. So, I mean, I think the my understanding is if there's a use, an active use for, for something, that's you know, the first priority is it can be actively reused. Um, uh, the XE's instrument, of course, will go back to the PI at University of California Davis for potential re- reuse. Um, and then in terms of the airplane, again, that, that is government property. That and the, and the telescope, of course, is German government property. So, I mean, those, those handles are being, those things are being handled by um, NAS and DLR to figure out where, where there's, those things are going. Um, now, about the team, that I, I can speak more directly for. We have a closeout plan that follows along what work the government needs from U.S. Array Science Mission Operations. And uh, we've hammered out that plan, which I'm, you know, includes summary processing of the data. Uh, so Sophia will live on in the Infrared Science Archive um, located at IPAC. Um, you can get some of that data now, but uh, we will be reprocessing it to make the best archive for, for some sets of the later sets of the data. We have um, a one-year timescale for that, um, and we have been working with our team uh, to keep them informed throughout the process since April. We've been uh, absolutely transparent about what we're trying to achieve and close out, including input from them as much as possible, and just going back and forth <clears throat> Excuse me, in terms of um, what's happening, and giving them uh, plenty of notice um, so they can seek out other positions. Now, the Sophia team is amazing. Um, it literally is the best team I've ever had the, the pleasure to lead. They're incredibly dedicated. They're very smart. <laughs> they're very resourceful, and they're very team-oriented. And if you've ever been on a flight, you have at least five different parties having to work in unison to execute the observations, and they do it flawlessly. I mean, this year it's been flawless operations. And some of them, you know, Sophia is a mix of people who love astronomy and also love aircraft. And so you can imagine that um, where they may go, um, depending on what what their desires are. And uh, we we are giving them every support we can in terms of um, trying to identify other opportunities that might interest them. I can tell you, uh, if you're out there reviewing any of their resumes, they're amazing. And you'd be lucky to have them on your staff. I have to think that uh, listing this experience on their resumes or CVs has got to be pretty attractive to wherever they may end up next. And I have personal experience of how the different elements of this team work together from that flight that I and a couple of my colleagues uh, made in 2015 uh, and how well it was managed, how well it was put together. It, It was just truly, as I already said, one of the great experiences of my professional, really my entire life to see how they work together from the cockpit back to the, the telescope itself to uh, deliver the science that Sophia was capable of. I, it was very, very impressive. Yes, it is. 
are we going to be seeing good science come out of Sophia data for a long time to come? Oh, I, yes, most certainly. I mean, the last flight is tonight. Uh, we're the Hawk Plus instruments on the flight. <clears throat> it's been one of our I don't know, most groundbreaking instruments because it's ever able to measure magnetic fields in nearby star formation regions as well as nearby galaxies. And we have not only the individual investigator programs, but we have um, a number of legacy programs where PIs get a larger chunk of time. Um, they do a, a very comprehensive survey, and um, that data goes into the archive available immediately for anybody to use. But then they also uh, work on maybe some higher-level data products that they can deliver back to the archive and analysis tools. Um, so all those things we hope really enrich um, the archive. And uh, the archive is going to be available for the foreseeable future. It's at one of NASA's, um, the Infrared Science Archive, and I'm expecting to see Sophia papers 20 years from now because someone goes back, looks at something, analyzes it, and comes up with a, with a new discovery. Um, but yeah, we do have um, um, some science uh, events coming out. We have something on um, active galactic nuclei signatures for uh, active galactic nuclei, and that will be, I think, in October. That is, you know, a discussion all of our science presentations and many workshops talk about SOFIA data, but they talk about you know, the multi-wavelength nature of astronomy and so how it's used with, in conjunction with other observatories, optical and UV and X-ray and radio. Um, and, uh, of course, the, the niche that SOFIA is providing is this wavelength range in the far infrared where most of the radiation from cosmic ecosystems come out. And so it is a very key area of diagnostics. And um, I, I'm excited about that workshop. And uh, we have a number of other workshops that have happened over the past two years in this um, very important effort we've had with science outreach and communication to show people what the SOFIA data can do for them. Margaret, do you have any idea how many papers have been published that have been based on, uh, at least in part, SOFIA data? Indeed, I do. It's, um, it, I'm going to give you a round number, around 300. Wow. That's impressive. So we really started taking lots of science data in 2014. I hate to ask scientists, leaders of projects, this question, but uh, you probably expect it. I wonder if there are any greatest hits that you'd like to call attention to. I don't want to offend anybody who isn't included, but maybe just a, a selection of results that indicate the um, the breadth, the, the spectrum of work that Sophia has been able to achieve. Uh, sure. I've been rehearsing a lot of that this, this <laughs> past year because we've been putting together senior review reports and bulletins and stuff. So I'll, I'll hit a few of them. for Maybe I'll hit one for each instrument. So for forecasts, probably the best known result worldwide is the water on the sunlit surface of the moon that came out in, I think it was October 2020, and a super exciting result. There was known to be water in the, the polar ice caps where it was cold, but, you know, looking at the sunlit surface was sort of a bold move, and uh, the team that did that, it was very impressive, exciting, and we actually uh, awarded them a legacy program to map water at, at different samples across the whole surface of the moon to better understand this. And we finished most of it, uh, but not all of it, a couple weeks ago when we finished the forecast series. And super exciting. And uh, I think another paper came out um, showing a result of that and showing how it changes 
Before you go on, I just want to say that that result caused a lot of excitement among my colleagues at the Planetary Society. The fact that there might oh, be I bet. water locked up right out there in the bright sun on the moon, at least yes. during the daytime. Yes. Pretty exciting result. It's very exciting. Not, you're not clear what it means. And that's uh, what the legacy program is uh, hopefully going to elucidate. And again, because it's a legacy program, that data goes immediately to the archive and the team is going to improve, make a better improved, um, I think they have plans for making an improved archive of their, their traces of water on the sunlit surface. Along, let me pick the great instrument. This is the, the German instrument, the heterodyne receiver. It's had a number of fabulous results, but one that, that really stands out is the detection, the first ever detection of helium hydride. Hmm. Um, so the wavelength range Sophia covers uh, uniquely covers hydrides. Um, their strongest transitions are in the far infrared. And so it's the ideal wavelength to look for them. And helium hydride is a molecule that thought to be key very early in the universe, because of course the universe started off as hydrogen and helium, and then we <laughs> built from there. Uh, and helium hydride was thought to be the first molecule. They found it in a planetary nebula. It just had just the right conditions that they could detect it. And that was very exciting first um, because it gives you insight into the chemical reaction rates that create it. And that helps put constraints on you know, theoretical modeling of what happens early on in the universe. So that was um, a, you know, a big impact that, uh, that GREAT did. I just want to make the comment now about what this indicates about the hole that Sophia has filled, which I've heard about from several other scientists, that, that the lack of Sophia is going to leave us without a lot of ability to examine some of these wavelengths, isn't it? It is. You know, um, one of the reasons I became director is I thought this um, Sophia uh, is the only working Farnford observatory in the world at the moment, and it's important to make it as scientifically productive as possible. And, and like I said, I believe we did that. But when it goes away, when it takes its last flight tonight, um, the astronomy community won't have an observatory to apply to with projects in mind. The fortunate thing is the decadal recommended that NASA invest in this wavelength range with potentially a probe. It might be an X-ray or far infrared probe and a, a, a next generation great observatory down the road. So it is realized to be important in that process, but we will have a time gap mm. for sure. We will have a time gap. It just occurred to me that there may be people thinking out there, well, the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, that's an infrared telescope. But it's not designed for the far infrared, is it? That's correct. I mean, James Webb finishes at the wavelength of around 28 microns. And Sophia covers like 5 to, you know, 600 microns. Wow. And the, the bulk, as I mentioned, the bulk of the radiation from cosmic ecosystems comes out in the far infrared, you know, ranging from 28 to 500 microns. It's directly probing the interstellar medium. And when you look at spectral energy distributions of galaxies, there's two bumps. There's the optical UV, which is where the stars are coming out, and then there's the, the far infrared, limited to far infrared, because that's where the interstellar medium is radiating a lot of its um, bulk radiation. Because of dust, dust absorbs the stellar radiation and re-emits it in the infrared. I interrupted your greatest hits there, so please. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yes, greatest hits. 
So Hawk Plus is uh, the newest instrument, and uh, I, I can tell you in the most recent cycle, it was the most popular instrument to apply for. And it does something revolutionary. You can do photometry at the far infrared, but what it has added that we didn't have with other observatories like Herschel was uh, a polarimeter to measure magnetic fields. Astronomy is very data-driven, and uh, you need data to guide the field. You know, magnetic fields are always thought, well, you know, they're important, but because you don't have data on them, you don't really know how important they are. You don't really know what their contributions are. And a Hawk Plus really um, has revolutionized that because uh, people could apply for and start to study um, the magnetic fields as traits by the dust. And again, because the far infrared covers that peak of the spectral energy distribution, it's a very sensitive wavelength to make these magnetic field measurements. And you can peer all the way down to where the star is actually forming. Uh, and so one of the cool results that came out uh, was on the Serpent's Cloud where they show how the direction of the magnetic field changes with the column density and, uh, and extinction. The Planck mission showed us that really far away from dense clouds, you know, the interstellar medium kind of follows along the lines of the magnetic field. You know, there's this wispiness, but then you get down to becomes denser, the magnetic field is perpendicular to the structure. You see the filament and it sort of almost prevents, it looks like it maybe prevents it from collapsing into stars. Uh, but then when you get to super high densities, and this is this needed the angular resolution that Hawk Plus offered, as well as the uh, sensitivity to look deep into the cloud, you find at really high extinctions or, or column densities, the magnetic field reorients itself and actually helps feed the, the gas to form the, the stars and the clusters. And, and so that was really exciting. You know, people may have uh, predicted it, but here you have the Hawk Plus evidence showing what, what is happening. And we um, commissioned two legacy programs, one's um, by Thushara Pillai, who's um, doing something called Simplify, and Ian Stevens doing something um, called Field Maps, where they're actually mapping these filaments in the magnetic fields. And so that's, that's a super exciting um, result. Uh, let's see, going on to uh, FIFLS, for me, I love the Magellanic Clouds, and... Um, we started what we called a pilot legacy program to map, led by Sue Madden, where they're mapping a large portion of uh, the South Molecular Ridge. And it's the first time. That's one thing that we're going to miss with Sophia. It's very efficient at mapping large regions with spectral lines compared to the prior observatories. And it just has mapped a really large region in C+. And the, the C plus line, uh, the carbon line, it's mm. one of the brightest... Uh, lines that you can see in the universe. It, it, it can um, contain about a 2% of the galaxy's radiation is a, because it's a dominant cooling line of the interstellar medium. Super bright. Again, nearby universe, you can only see this in the far infrared. And so Sophia has done a lot of work with FIFLS and GREAT to map out and understand the context of this, this key cooling line. People use the ALMA telescopes measure it at high redshift, and that's 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 really because it's really bright. You can see it. But with uh, Sophia, you can actually understand where it comes from. Does it trace star formation? How does it uh, trace the column density of gas? Um, there's a lot of utilities. It's a workhorse line in the far infrared lane, in, in the far infrared wavelength range, and so we'll, we'll miss seeing that for a bit. Exes. 
So XSEES is a very high spectral resolution in the mid-infrared. So it covers the same wavelength range as um, JBS T MIRI, but extremely high spectral resolution. You can really pull out all the lines. And there's been a lot of remarkable work done on uh, water lines at other sort of prebiotic molecules around forming stars, um, where they've been able to measure the content um, of prebiotics, like you know, acetylene and things like that, and water, interior in disks where planets are forming around massive stars. Um, and then, you know, being able to divulge that and do spectral line surveys has been, I think, a really uh, landmark area for SOFIA. So I think I've covered all the instruments with, with something each. Um, I think they're all spectacular and special. I'm sad to see that uh, we won't get to use them anymore after today. Certainly presents a lot of evidence and, and just a fraction of what SOFIA has been able to accomplish that tells us about the value of this observatory. There, there's something else that I'm thinking of that has been of value, I think. And I saw evidence of this on the flight that I made with my, my colleagues in 2015. We weren't the only people along for the ride. There were, I believe, three teachers. I think they were high school science teachers who were participating on behalf of their, their classes back at their schools. It was kind of the culmination of a, of a long line of study that they had been conducting. Talk a little bit about this program and, and how it represents the outreach that you've been able to accomplish uh, through SOFIA. Right. Well, I have to say that that's uh, done by another organization uh, with, with SOFIA, but I have certainly witnessed it like you did. Uh, very valuable type of outreach, unique in the realm of NASA, because, you know, we can't send, you know, teachers up to, to touch Hubble. You know, it's a robotic mission far off in space. Uh, and only if you're a highly trained astronaut can you go repair it. But, you know, with SOFIA, we land every day and take off every day. And that enables us not only to, you know, fix and repair instruments and stuff, but it allows us to take new people on. And the teacher program is phenomenal. Phenomenal. I had teachers come up to me at the AAS saying, we are so sad that SOFIA is going away because it was such a inspirational opportunity and, you know, these teachers do come on board, you know, they've done some prep work, they, they teach their classes about it. It really pulls in through the teachers, uh, the excitement of, of, of doing science, of working in STEM. Uh, it's a very exciting um, opportunity. And I loved talking to the teachers that um, have been on board. I, as I said, I saw direct evidence of this as well, and uh, just in the enthusiasm of these teachers, they obviously felt as fortunate as we did to, to be on board, Sophia, for that flight. You said you're going to be on that flight tonight, the last flight, as far as we know, uh, uh, with uh, Sophia conducting observations. What will be the target this evening? Oh, right, right. Well, I can tell you when we do a flight series, we always do the most important targets first. So I just to tell you about the flight series of this Hawk Plus run, the, the primary target was had already been accomplished. That was to finish the mapping of the magnetic field in the galactic center. Oh, great. Um, so that was uh, super exciting. Um, on this last flight, we continue to map magnetic fields in different objects. Uh, we are looking at these um, legacy program, two legacy programs. One is the one I mentioned with the filaments. So we're looking at two filaments from the Simplify program where we're mapping the magnetic fields in the, 
in, in a star formation, star forming filament. And the other one is for um, a galaxy. It's a starburst galaxy, NGC 253. And that's for another legacy program called SALSA, uh, led by Enrique Lopez Rodriguez. And he is mapping the magnetic fields um, in a number of iconic nearby galaxies and just showing a whole new light as to what's happening in these galaxies. So that's what's happening. We're, we're mapping magnetic fields in the universe tonight. Uh, Margaret, uh, clear skies tonight on that last flight of Sophia. Please convey a message from Bill Nye and all of us at the Planetary Society and probably everybody listening to this as well, thanking and congratulating everybody on board and everybody on the ground who has contributed to uh, all of these successes that you've given us a taste of with uh, with Sophia. And, and best of uh, continued success to uh, all of you as we watch the data continue to flow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. And uh, we really appreciate all the, the fan support the Planetary Society's had for us over the years. Keep your eyes open for Sophia results. They will still continue to come out and they will still continue to inspire. Margaret Meixner is Director of Science Mission Operations for Sophia. I'll be right back with Bruce. First, though, an encore visit with John Delancey, the actor many of you know as Star Trek's Q. Star Trek has always represented the hope for a better future. I don't think you can have that without pushing boundaries. And in the case of space, that is all that we're doing, is pushing those boundaries and finding out more. Always finding out more. And I think it's really important as a human being, as a society, to be able to do something like that. And this is where we do it. Um, 200, 300 years ago, we did it on sailing ships across the ocean. Space is important to me because it's a kind of a metaphor for risk-taking, tremendous rewards, possible rewards, being more expansive in one's thinking, and opening oneself up to the infinite possibilities. Probably the biggest thing that differentiates Star Trek from almost everything else is the community in which you enter. Well, the Planetary Society is that type of a community. If you share, like me, the need to expand into infinite possibilities, as my character does in Star Trek, and as I have said to Picard on more than one occasion, then certainly joining the Planetary Society is a good way to go. Join the Planetary Society. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio, and I'm joined, therefore, by the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Right now, it's Bruce Betts. I mean, it's always Bruce Betts. He's always the Chief Scientist. I don't know what I meant by right now. Back in 2015, he was still <laughs> the Chief Scientist. I was still Bruce Betts. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hi, Matt. <laughs> And we, what did we do in 2015? We went with our good friend, Merck Boyan, uh, our video guy from the Planetary Society, our ace video guy. And we rode on that plane, just as I mentioned uh, during the interview with uh, Margaret a few minutes ago. Man, it was a great experience. You and Merck tried to get in some sleep. I was just too popped up to, to sleep. I just enjoyed being there the whole time. It was great. I don't remember trying to get in sleep. We filmed some random space fact videos. Did you think we were sleeping? <laughs> now, who was that in the seat then? No, I think you tried toward the end of the flight. I mean, it was all night, so it's understandable. Oh, right, when we were headed back at dawn. 
And we're going to link to those random space uh, fact videos. There's another video that Merck made just generally about the experience. Yeah. And then, of course, the show, the, the Planetary Radio episode that uh, came out of that experience as well. What a great adventure. It was, and a very, very impressive facility. So if you were up there above the clouds with a big yeah. telescope, what would you be looking at uh, right now? Well, being a planetary guy, I would look at planets. And I would look in the evening, and I would check out uh, over in the east, uh, moving towards the south, at least for those of us in the northern hemisphere, bright, super, very bright Jupiter hanging out uh, in the sky and to its upper right, again, upper, even right, Saturn, Saturn, move, move in the sky towards the west and you'll see a yellowish object that's Saturn. Uh, you will, you have uh, any trouble finding these, which you shouldn't for Jupiter because it's brighter than the brightest star. Uh, the moon is hanging out between them or near them, moving from Saturn on the 5th of October to uh, Jupiter on the 8th of October. Coming up a couple hours later in the mid-evening, mid to late evening, is Mars, looking very bright. Mars brightening for the next couple months. You can watch it over the next two months. Brightened by about a factor of three, but it's wow. already very, very bright as Earth and Mars approach each other in their orbits, as they do every 26 months. If you have a good view to the eastern horizon and are up before dawn for some reason, like you had an 80-pound dog jump on top of you. Not that that ever happens to me, but it does. Uh, you can check out Mercury, but very low to the horizon. gets about its highest on the 8th and then heads back down, being that sneaky little bugger that it is. For 20 years now, I've thought about the, the astronomers out there who say, why isn't he giving us right ascension and declination instead of upper right? Well because not many people know what those are. Yeah, my, my general philosophy, uh, right or wrong, as you've probably noticed, is easy things to look for are described in an easy, albeit somewhat vague way. And since I only tend to talk about bright objects, uh, you don't need the RA and deck, as we say in the, in the know. Basically, right ascension and declination, for those who don't know, are sky coordinates that astronomers use. It's like latitude and longitude on the Earth to identify where you're looking in the sky. Thank you. I should have asked you that probably in the first year of the show, but, but better late than never. Well, keep thinking of these questions for the next few weeks. We'll address them. Will do. Meantime, let us uh, move on to this week in space history. I remember. 1967. Apollo 7, the first crewed Apollo mission to space, flew, launched this week in 1968. Crewed isn't people on it, not because it was a crewed version of Apollo. Well, they got in a little trouble, but that wasn't necessarily for being crewed. Yeah. Just, anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Uh, but I will throw in a bonus random space fact before we get to the real one, because I've used it before, which is Wally Schirra, who is the commander of that mission, is the only astronaut to fly in Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Love it. He was a fun guy, too. Fun guy. Not to be confused with the mushroom. On to space fact. Ooh, if only people could see your mouth working as you did that. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah okay anyway matt you may have wondered how heavy is that telescope that they carry in an airplane i have 
Well, the installation weight of the Sophia Airborne Observatory's telescope was the equivalent of more than a dozen DeLorean cars. <laughs> I just thought I'd put in something everyone has a, in, an intuitive feel for. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's great. Did they include the uh, the time machine portions? Uh, uh, what what was it called? I forget what the device was called. We'll get it. The flux capacitor? That's it, of course, the flux capacitor. Yeah, this doesn't count when they're like time displacements. This is just your standard run-of-the-mill DeLorean. I guess no DeLorean is standard run-of-the-mill. <laughs> so And no Mr. Fusion built into the hood? <laughs> no, they knock on to the future. Uh, anyway, that's about 17 tons for those of you who uh, don't have a, a good feel for DeLoreans, but do have, for some reason, a good feel for what 17 tons really means. Really impressively heavy flying in an airplane. Trying to come up with a good rhyme. 17 tons, and what do you get? A telescope <laughs> that flies inside of a jet. There, there, I did it. There, there it is. Wow, we witnessed it in real time. Nice. Wow, that stands alone. I'm moving on to the trivia contest. Uh, I asked you, what is the approximate, approximate diameter of the crater that Deep Impact made when it impacted Comet Temple 1? How did we do, Matt? Really well. It was uh, great to hear from everybody. Still getting those great messages from everybody about my plans. Thank you for that, everyone. I am so far behind in responding, but it is my plan, my intent, to uh, respond to everybody who had something nice to say. One of those nice things said came from Gene Lewin in Washington. He also uh, sent this uh, poem. When all the dust had settled, Temple One had a big dent a crater now existed from an impactor we had sent. It left quite a divot 150 meters wide and opened up this comet so we could see what was inside. Oh, very nice. Divot! 150 meters? 150 meters, as, uh, as determined from later spacecraft flyby of what the Stardust follow-on mission. Yeah, which we heard from a whole bunch of people, because you did mention that. It was Stardust repurposed as next, right? Which is pretty amazing that they were able to take a spacecraft that flew, 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 flew through the tail of a comet and repurpose it to uh, take a quick look at this. It's amazing. I do have to correct you on an incredible subtlety. It did not fly through the tail. It flew through the coma. Ah, thank you very much. Yeah, so much closer, actually, to the, uh, yeah. the body of the comet. Yeah, good. We have a winner, Daniel Huckabee. He is a past winner, but it has been well over three years since Daniel Huckabee in Nevada picked up a win here. He said, greetings, Matt and Bruce. Uh, interesting tidbit, diameter of the crater left by deep, deep Impact, a little bit larger than the height of the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is 430 feet tall. He says, P.S., we're going to miss you, Matt. Thank you. Daniel, I'm, I'm going to miss you too. But Daniel, you get this prize to help you stop worrying about that. It's the medallion that the Planetary Society created in 1989 to commemorate the Voyager missions, Neptune and Counter. We will put one of those in the mail to you soon. Daniel, and oh, who wants one there? Which of the dogs wants a medallion? Uh, that's Gracie. Gracie desperately wants a medallion. She loves them. All right. Well, they're dog treats, right? Medallion uh, brand dog no, treats. No, I'm afraid not. They don't oh, sorry. Them. Never mind. They're not dog treats. Yeah, she's quiet now. I got more. 
Mel Powell, funny guy in California, he tried to get Ray Paletta, our colleague Ray, to uh, tell him on Twitter how tall you and I are. And then he was going to lay the two of us and some clones in a crater to say how long, how big the crater was across. <laughs> But she didn't answer. So uh, anyway, he may, he may yet amend his answer. <laughs> I'm not sure that's part of the official information she has, but uh, <laughs> I'm taller. That's all that matters. Quite a bit. Uh, set upon Corsia Tracle in New York, he said it's approximately one trillionth of Earth's aphelion. Aphelion? Which aphelion. Is aphelion. Thank you. 152 million one hundred thousand kilometers or 150 meters that's the one trillionth what aphelion help us out here wow that is a really obscure wonderful unit not aphelion so much but comparing it to the size of a crater <laughs> very impressive i guess aphelion is in an elliptical orbit as they are aphelion is the farthest point from the sun and perihelion is the closest point to the sun earth is mostly circular but it does it is a, a not completely circular so it has aphelion and perihelion. Thank you. Uh, Chris Mills, maybe they should have named that copper impactor, the one that uh, Deep Impact slammed into the, the uh, comet. Maybe they should have named it Matt, because I have made, he says, a Deep Impact. Wow, okay, I, I'm kind of vaporized, but. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. And finally, from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Comet Temple got a smack and found it had a crater. It was size 500 feet, we found out somewhat later. NASA Stardust took a pic, which helps us to deduce. It's just about the same as 85 to 90, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, no, that works. I mean, I'm like 1.8 meters, something like that. Six feet tall in the, in the morning, you know, meters. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you, everybody. We're, we're ready to go on, and boy, we have a great prize. Okay, well, I've got a great question. Name the solar system body and the category of geologic feature that are officially named after abandoned cities. Oh. So we're looking for a planetary body, like a planet, asteroid, and a category of geologic features like, you know, mountain but we're looking for the proper Latin term, and we're looking for that for ones that are officially named after abandoned cities. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Wow. I hope one of them, one of these features is, is Turpon. Turpon, an abandoned city on the Silk Route that I actually went to once many years ago. But that's another story. You have until the 12th of October, Wednesday, October 12th at 8 a.m. Pacific time, to get us this answer. And here's the prize, The Moon's Symphony by composer Amanda Lee Falkenberg, conducted, of course, by Amiran Olsop. It is absolutely gorgeous. The BBC has just come out with a, an article praising it in its uh, classical music magazine. It's from Signum Classics. I highly recommend it. Seven movements, each inspired by a different moon of our solar system. And boy, did I have a good time uh, watching it being recorded by the London Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Marin also. I think we're done. Wow, very cool. Uh, thank you for listening. And everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about what Matt's head looks like when it, no. Think about, ooh, ooh, think about Matt's, no. 
Hey, just think about Matt. Thank you and good night. Okay, that's enough. You can stop now. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us thoughtfully every week here on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who never want to see the end of our quest. Help them help science and space exploration at planetary.org join. Marco Verde and Ray Poletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.